netcasting from Chicago, Los Angeles, and Sydney. You're listening to this week's FX Podcast from FXGuide.com. This podcast is proudly brought to you by Autodesk, a leader in 3D design and entertainment software. Autodesk solutions help filmmakers, game developers, and other content creators solve complex production challenges and create innovative, distinctive entertainment. Thanks for joining us for this FX podcast, where we take our passion for visual effects and bring you in-depth interviews with visual effects artists around the world. The FX podcast was started to give us a place to dig deep on the technical side, talk one-on-one with top visual effects artists, advance the craft of visual effects, and pay respect to the hardworking, creative people producing amazing work. This is your chance to hear directly from the source, from the front lines of visual effects. Today, we're talking with Jeff White from ILM about the film The Avengers, which, as we produce this podcast, looks to be another mega blockbuster at the box office. Mike Seymour will discuss with him their work on the film, specifically their work on The Hulk and on Digital New York. Before we get to that, I wanted to point out there's a lot of new content over on FX Guide, as always. A great FX Guide TV showing some work in Nuke and Ocula by Mr. X on Tron. These types of breakdowns have been immensely popular on FX Guide TV, our video podcast. We also produce a visual effects review podcast called The VFX Show. Episode number 146 just came out, and it's one of our retro shows covering Alien and Aliens. And for FX Insiders, we just posted our behind-the-scenes video from NAB 2012, along with a gag reel we did at the show. I hope you enjoy that. Also for FX Insiders from the show Floor, there's an interview with Ted Shilowitz from Red, but this time the tables are turned and he interviews R. Mike Seymour. Anyway, as always, a lot of new content at fxguide.com, and the new term is underway over at our sister site, fxphd.com, where we offer both the finest professional online visual effects training and the most affordable. Let's jump now into this week's podcast. Mike Seymour interviews Jeff White from ILM about The Avengers. Thanks. So let me start by asking you about The Hulk. Um, Clearly, The Hulk has been a sort of done before, but less successfully. This film, he seemed to really master the requirement of being able to leap tall buildings at a near single bound, but also have physical weight. Did that mm-hmm. involve anything other than just hard slog on your part? Was there anything that sort of really made it click for you guys? Well, I think, you know, a big part of uh, what we really enjoyed about this film was that uh, Joss, I think, really got what the fans were we're wanting as far as what the Hulk should be doing. And, you know, he's got his brief moments where he's communicating calmly with the other team members and then he's kind of cut loose, you know, to be the Hulk. And um, so we knew right from the beginning that he was going to need to be able to uh, jump pretty big distances and um, just really, um, you know, destroy his environment as a byproduct of, um, you know, fighting the, the other characters. Uh, so, you know, I, th- the the animation work you know as far as selling the weight and all that that was really you know a hard slog um to get it right and to get you know all the all the pieces working together to really make his mass believable but um beyond that we we definitely did several rounds of simulation as far as the muscle dynamics and the skin to to help you know make that all kind of work together 
you know, we, pretty pretty early in the in the production process, we had that shot where he's running down the hallway behind Black Widow, and right. um, you know that felt like okay, this is the the slow motion you know Olympics footage where we're going to be able to see everything, you know, see every detail, see the muscles kind of jiggling up and down, and you know all everything that would go into a, a sixteen hundred pound guy running down a hall. Let's discuss just skin texture for a second or shading. Um, sure. It, it's a difficult proposition to sell any character. Uh, Avatar, obviously, to try and sell blue skin character. Was it selling a green skin character? You know, if it becomes too green, it becomes just oddly lollipopish. If it's, you know, too yeah. dark, it just uh, doesn't sell as what it's meant to be. Did you have any real difficulty in not only getting the green, but also maintaining it in the different environments you had to be in, from the uh, interior shots to those bright sun exteriors? Yeah, we had a big uh, slogan on the whiteboard behind us that uh, green is really hard. <laughs> and uh, we, you, you sort of hit it right on the head there in that, um, you know, I think initially Joss picked uh, a, a great color for us to start with. He was um, much more desaturated than uh, previous iterations. And I think if you're going after skin, um, you know, having something that is more in the sort of realm of skin tones, even though it is of, of a green tint instead of a human skin color, helped us a lot. And, um, you know, it was it was pretty amazing to us. Like, even after we'd done the initial look development in, you know, multiple environments, blue sky and key lit and overcast, um, you know, his color changed so much um, in, in every shot. So there was a lot of work in terms of lining up all the Hulk shots and making sure that he stayed consistent between them as far as that green color. And then, and then I think a big part of it was really just pulling a lot of the saturation out of it, um, partially because, you know, rather than being his own film, he's sitting there side by side with all the other Avengers. So if he's a real vibrant green, he just popped right off the frame in a way that made him a lot less believable. So, you know, we'd, we'd pull him down sometimes close to black and white and then, and then start to put some green back into him until he felt like he sat in the scene more naturally. So famously, Mark Ruffalo gets to play Bruce Banner and the Hulk in the sense that he was involved in the motion capture. Can you talk about that process? Because sure. uh, I understand it used original face capture technology. Yeah, um, actually, and it even started before then. As far as Hulk skin, um, we put we, we we you know we knew Hulk was going to be the hardest part, and getting his skin looking right was going to be the most difficult. So Mark was uh, amazingly agreeable to everything that we put him through as far as data acquisition, um, and we really did the sort of gamut. We had our own sort of texture shoot, um, especially which was really useful in terms of getting you know right in on the mouth, like he would. Uh, uh, open his lips so he could get the gums and the teeth and all these different lighting environments, the corners of the eyes, you know, a lot of the in, in between the fingers, a lot of the detail type stuff. Um, we did a full uh, light stage of his head, which gave us really great geometry and textures to work with. But, you know, with, with, with any one solution, there's always kind of patches where you don't get quite the right amount of skin detail. So on top of all that, he did a life cast that we did a scan of and, um, uh, Chris Costa was able to work in ZBrush and actually just go, uh, you know, across his face and sort of find the areas where the detail was best between each of those solutions, and um, and and bring that into the Hulk. And I think what what worked really well for us in this is that 
we we knew that if we just started working on the Hulk, it was going to become an art project pretty fast, and and that can be a pretty slippery slope. So instead, we we really focused almost exclusively on um, creating a banner digital double, um, and we'd shot you know high speed photography during the light stage session where we had you know a light basically from every lighting position around him, and um, lined that up side by side with our digital double, and just kept working you know piece by piece as far as the skin, the pore detail, how much, you know, at one point he looks a little bit like a basketball and then you kind of back off those areas and, um, and, uh, just keep working all the different parts and the hair and everything until we got a, a pretty good representation of Mark as a digital double. And then from there, uh, the Hulk shared the same topology, same texture maps, everything, you know, then we started repainting him to be green, but all the poor detail and, uh, maps and spec maps and everything kind of carried over from Banner. And I think by doing that first step of matching a real person where you have that kind of ground truth side by side and then and then getting that onto the Hulk really saved us a lot of um, exploration as far as what the Hulk's skin should look like. There must be, I mean, though he's a, obviously meant to be sort of a humanoid, there must be a reasonable amount of retargeting because the proportions of the Hulk must, I, I'm guessing, have like shorter proportional legs to spine yes. to shoulder width absolutely and and face as well you know there's he's got that huge hulk brow and he's got a much longer distance between uh the bottom of his nose and his upper lip and so um there there was quite a process like we started off with a mova capture session um to get uh banners uh training library essentially you know so we had kind of a wide range of shapes on banner and then continued to flesh that out into a full you know suite of uh, shapes that we could use for animation and also as the underpinnings of the facial capture and then and then transferred all that that whole shape library over to Hulk and then you know which was reasonably successful um, because we've got we'd uh, Kira and Bat had delivered um, developed some pretty great retargeting tools between the two to help a, uh, account for some of those proportion differences but there was still a lot of cleanup work that needed to be done once once everything got onto the Hulk. But the nice thing was, as far as Mark's capture sessions went, um, we did two sessions. Essentially, he was out on set for every take that had the Hulk um, uh, performance-wise in the IMO cap suit with uh, tracking dots on the face. And we had four, besides the sort of picture camera, we had four HD witness cameras, two, two full body and two trained specifically on the face. Um, so we got a, a, a round of performance work there. Um, and then once the cut had kind of settled a little bit, um, like when we were further into production, and also once we'd spent some time figuring out who is this Hulk going to be as far as body performance and and facial performance, um, uh, Mark and Joss came back to ILM, and we were able to do another capture session uh, on the mocap stage. You know, And, and in that, we, we did a... Um, uh, uh, performance for every shot in the film that was going to have Hulk, uh, which was well, really uh, beneficial. To, to take nothing away from Mark, but it seems to me that there must have been some that were like, I mean, you say every shot, but I mean, like, he's leaping on buildings. He's Yes. Sorry, you're absolutely right. Every shot that he could do a performance for. So, you know, there's a lot that are just straight ahead keyframe and yeah. really comes down to the the – um, amazing work that the uh, animators did, um, and you know, even even in the ones where Mark does a performance for us, um, uh, you know, we get a lot from the face uh, that we can work with. But there's still a lot of animation work that has to happen in terms of 
interpreting what that actually means once it gets onto the Hulk uh, because of those proportion differences that you talked about. Well, well, let's talk about two shots in particular because they literally got uh, breakout applause in the middle of a general session that I was in. Let me guess, um, a slam shot? Where he hits the four. Yeah. Yeah, that, that has spontaneous applause. And the other yeah. one that got spontaneous applause is what I refer to as the, uh, the rag doll sequence um, uh, in uh, Tony Stark's apartment uh, with uh-huh. the uh, puny, uh, puny god remark. But um, in those cases, uh, you must have been not only sort of retargeting for the body, but retargeting for the speed because the punch to Thor... Uh, you know, is obviously a retimed punch. I don't think anyone can punch that fast. Um, yes, yeah. I hope not. <laughs> yep, yep. Um, so, how does that process go then? Uh, Th- those two shots in particular, I think, were were very much about uh, uh, animation. And you know, there was there was some some uh, that was used. You know, some facial stuff that was used from Mark. There, Mark Chu, the animation supervisor, also uh, did some motion capture as kind of a basis for those as as well, because we were blending quite a few performances there. Um, and and then the Loki slam shot um, where he's uh, in Tony's apartment, that was pretty much uh, a combination of an underlying uh, motion capture and then a lot of uh, hand animation that was done, um, just because the, his size and his physicality uh, in that shot. You, you know, you really just can't get a, a, a spot-on performance from somebody that's wildly different in proportion. So, as I understand, it, it wasn't actually Mark's voice that. I mean, the Hulk doesn't have many lines, but he has one in that particular scene. That wasn't mm-hmm. his Mark's. That wasn't Mark's delivery of a voice or a, or a treated version of Mark's voice, was it? It was actually Lou's voice. You know, I don't know actually, <laughs> which is which I really should. But um, the uh, the. Uh, the end result, like we we did have a performance um, from Mark as far as the face goes in that shot, but um, that that one ended up also being a lot of uh, hand animation by Jacob Pistecki to get just the right shape on Hulk's mouth for delivering that puny godline because there's a lot of intonation and there's a lot of uh, you know uh, sort of. Uh, like he's got some really interesting mouth shapes there. And when we first applied the facial motion capture, he sort of looked a little fish lipped in there. So, you know, it was, it was quite difficult for us because there was quite a bit of, um, you know, just a, a few pixels difference in terms of where his eyelid was or where the eyebrow was could, would really change his expression quite a bit. It struck me that that line, which as I say is a complete fan favorite or audience favorite is interesting at, as a, at an animator level because it's actually a nuanced joke. It's not like as obvious as, you know, take that. Yeah. Um, but by the same token, you don't want to break character and have uh, Hulk suddenly intellectualizing at a level beyond his character's yeah. kind of ability. Yeah. So he has to kind of mutter it, but you also have to kind of hear it, and you also have to kind of understand that he's being sarcastic or, or you know. Yeah. Well, and, and the th- prob- other problem is, in you know, I think it comes so close after that stand up and cheer. Uh, shot where he's slamming Loki yeah. around on the ground. A lot of people don't hear the line, and it's his one line, you know, in the whole movie. Um, so it's definitely something to hear for. But um, that that shot in particular, especially with him delivering a line of dialogue, um, we spent a lot of time in animation, just you know, tuning the shape of the mouth and tuning the delivery and the attitude to get it just right. Because as as you said, it was a it was a really important um, performance shot. But I, and I think that's one of the great things about working with Joss is that you know he's such an uh, he's so good at working with actors and that I was really impressed at how well that extended to working with animators. 
Tell me, how, how close did Josh get to the character animators on that kind of a shot? Was that, was that really through you or? I mean- no, I mean, we would do, we would do pretty frequent, um, re- review sessions with him. And, you know, we'd have the animators come in the room and, I mean, it was, uh, you know, he was on the CineSync and, you know, that feedback loop was, was very direct. And I think that helped a lot in terms of, um, you know, finding Hulk's character. There was a point, fairly early on in the production where he came up to ILM and met with all the animators and, and really articulated who he wanted this Hulk to be um, and sort of the uh, emotion behind what, what drives him. And as a lot of, you know, what he articulated to Mark Ruffalo. And I think that, that helped, um, I mean, really interesting discussions about anger and, you know, what kind of anger this Hulk has. And it's that sort of uh, anger and fury, but mixed with regret you know, so I, I thought uh, it was it was really beneficial having that direct input from him. So before we get on to the environments, if we can use it as a bit of a bridge, because Iron Man is effectively, I think, a, a good bridge between uh, our discussion sure. on characters and on and environments, not least of which because as ILM as a company, you did a lot of work in moving towards a much more realistic um, uh, lighting models, and yeah. Iron Man was certainly part of that progression. Um, yeah. Did that continue in terms of you know how you approached uh, the lighting of say a Stark scale environment, which is pretty similar, I guess, in a way to the fight scene from Two, in the sense that you know he's uh, where they had the fireplace fight, um, in that it was a contained space and you know responded to the sort of physics of a contained space. Right. You mean as far as Iron Man's lighting in there? Or? Yeah, yeah. As far as you know, like yeah. uh, actually getting HDR samples of the actual lights and sort of yes. rebuilding a proper. Uh, yeah, uh, fall off lighting model. That's Absolutely, and um, and uh, that you know it, it was. I mean, one of the best things about being here was um, just the wealth of knowledge that had gone into uh, the first two movies, as far as getting him looking good. And you know, we were fortunate to start with um, re- really great uh, onset photography, uh, as as far as. Um, uh, Stark Tower and Tony's apartment, um, but all that stuff was also shot on a you know on a blue screen um, with stage lights. So um, we had the other benefit because we were rebuilding so much of New York for the sequence that we had um, uh, lighting spheres that we shot on top of the MetLife building, which is essentially where you know Stark Tower is. So we were able to use uh, those environments specifically for his lighting, um, and and the nice thing about that is that he lined up perfectly with the background plate that we were dropping him into. But you guys went further than just using, um, you know, image-based lighting or, or uh, yes. yeah. So it was actually the, the thing about Iron Man is like that gets you that gets you you know he then he's in the plate, um, <laughs> but but you know with with him I, actually I hadn't. I hadn't worked on Iron Two, so um, you know I, I was so focused on the Hulk getting into this one, and and uh, Iron Man it was definitely one of the hardest characters that we did on that. Like he, ch- he changes, you know, being metallic, you know, that kind of powder coated metal. He changes uh, drastically in different lighting environments, and just making sure that we're staying true to the reds and the golds and the right amount of sheen on the golds, and um, you know. Uh, and and really lighting him to where he's got a lot of shape because he tended, especially in the outdoor environments, he tended to get very filled immediately. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, you know, looking at a lot of the shots from Iron 1 and Iron 2, you know, they, there's a lot of work that goes into um, keeping his front side darker and, you know, really trying to shape him with some additional lights beyond just the environment. And it was nice, too, having, you know, Yannick serves as the client-side supervisor because he had a lot of continuity with the uh, previous film. 
Yeah. I mean, obviously, there are some sequences with Iron Man, uh, especially with the Heli character that are just fully uh, digital. But mm-hmm. in the environments where he's interacting, one of the things that I remember, I think we were talking to Ben Snow uh, around mm-hmm. the time of Iron Man 2, is that uh, when you take the HDRs, you didn't then have a good method of being able to capture a dynamically moving HDR. And I mentioned that shot with the fireplace, and mm-hmm. Ben discussed the difficulty that we just have as an industry and in that you know it's not easy to capture high dynamic range moving footage. Yes. I presume you didn't have that problem, or did you have that problem and you addressed it somehow? No, well, you know, what, what our problem was... Uh uh, was because so much of um, uh, the lighting environment was um, uh, a green screen set of New York. It was actually finding the right um, ba- uh, balance of things to construct our lighting sphere so that it represented what was there. And and in the end, um, you know, the the shots uh, that you see are sort of a combination of the lights from the set that they use to do kind of a top down skylight plus the buildings from our, from our digital and, you know, digimat environment, um, plus the ground from, you know, the set. So it ended up being this real strange kind of amalgamation of, of different, um, sources, uh, where we didn't have the benefit of just having a background plate and, oh, here's a sphere that's from the real world (laughs) that you just plug right in. The flip side of that was the solution to the problem you just talked about in that when he was flying around the city, we were able to take our, our, our Digimat New York City and render a 360 sphere out of that and use that as his lighting environment. And that's how we got all that great traveling reflection and stuff uh, off of it. So you know, while, while it was a bit of a hindrance, at the same time, we were able to solve that kind of moving environment problem. So let's move to that digital environment. And I've got to say that clearly you guys have done cities before and you've destroyed more than your fair share, (laughs) poor old New York. But uh, this was a stunningly large amount of a city to to produce. I mean, talk to me about the scale of the actual, because you just, you know, worst case scenario, you've got characters that are just flying with other very large characters moving after them through just what seemed to be block after block after block. Yeah. The, you know, and the thing is like I had, uh, just finished uh, Transformers: Dark of the Moon, and it was great in Chicago. You know, you fly, you just fly your helicopter right up the street. You know, um, and uh, you know, in New York, you're not allowed to take a helicopter any lower than 500 feet above the tops of the buildings. So, um, we knew right away that there was going to be a lot of reconstruction of New York because there's, um, as you saw, there's several sequences of flying in the film, flying around New York. Um, so we were essentially going to be creating aerial plates from photography, and then the other. Big build that we did was down on uh, the Grand Central, that uh, Park Avenue viaduct. That was um, that was you know they'd build a stretch of set and a lot of green screen around that. So we had a few real cars and some ground to work with, but uh, everything you know building wise that was around that and set dressing wise, um, we had to recreate. And and so just discuss that recreation because. You know, it's, you, you say that in one line, but I mean, that's just yeah. a huge undertaking. It was. And it kind of, you know, I think it was great. This was now sort of the, the ultimate culmination of, of building on um, that kind of virtual background technology where uh, we started with a pretty, at least the, the biggest um, photography shoot I know that we've done here, um, which was uh, eight weeks of uh, four photographers out in New York. And, um, and uh, we 
we got, um, you know, we were shooting 360-degree um, panospheres off the Canon 1DS Mark III, and we'd go like every 100 feet down Park Ave. Then we'd get up on a man lift and go at 120 feet down Park Ave and then just move around all the different building rooftops. Um, the great thing was that there so was – So can I just discuss that camera sure. a second? Are you shooting it sure. with a uh, – the 1D with a – 180 degree fisheye sort of eight millimeter lens and reconstructing no. the spheres or are you actually shooting no. a mirrored ball yeah we no we uh there would there would be we wouldn't have enough resolution i guess yeah. to hold up as a background plate especially with all the fairly extreme reprojections we had to do but um, so so you're so doing we're, a, we're shooting on a 50 mil lens and shooting pan, you know tiling it Exactly, tiling it and, and, and bracketing. It. Yeah. Exactly, and so you know that that introduces some real problems when you're hanging a camera off the top of a building and there's yeah. you know forty mile an hour winds. All of a sudden, your brackets don't necessarily register quite as good as you'd you'd like them to. I mean, I don't tend to interrupt you, but just that every time you sort of say a step, I stop and think, hang on a second, that's yeah. you know, like you just say go 150 feet down. But I mean, each one of those setups could take a reasonable amount of time to do because no matter how you know, efficient yep. the process is, you're taking a lot of pictures. Absolutely. No, you, you, you're you right on there. And, um, and, and that's, you know, four guys for, for eight weeks. That's what that turns into. Um, and, and really took, I mean, we collaborated very closely with Yannick at the beginning as far as, you know, here's, here's going to be our playground and we're just going to, you know, we had good previs, but you never know every shot that you're going to have to account for. So we wanted to be able to capture a playground essentially to, to work within. Um, and, and we were shooting all this photography before principal, um, shooting, uh, really got going. So, okay. well, let me just talk to you about two other aspects of that, Sorry, but I'm just fascinated yeah, no by the by minutia of this. The other thing that struck me when I was thinking about that is that, you know, you say, oh, it takes eight hours to go down. But if you start at one end of the street and get to the other and the light has completely shifted a direction because yeah. the day has gone by, then you've got a street that you're handing to the team to start painting that has the shadows all going in either completely wrong directions for a shot that'll, you know, someone will travel down it in like a minute yep. and you've got a time lapse effectively. Absolutely. And that's why um, the time of day has to be part of the, the plan. So, you know, we'd start a street uh, around a certain time um, and then, you know, maybe there's another street that we already started shooting more towards end of day. We jump back <laughs> over there, shoot that, come back to the next one the next day, you know, shoot that. Um, same thing with... And with God forbid buildings. that the clouds come over. Yeah, well, and and that does happen. And, you know, there's, there's shots, um, you know, t- to some degree uh, that... It's like any, you know, real shoot where weather's going to change and it's going to change shot to shot. But as you're building out a single street, it's a real issue. And, you know, with some of the shots, especially we called it the tie-in, but it's the big one where we fly, you know, from zone to zone. Hmm. Uh, we had photography that was like front key, then right key, then overcast, then, you know, side key. And at, at some level, you just kind of have to brute force your way through and re- repaint some of the, the lighting so that it it's uh, believable. But we also found that there's a certain amount of leeway that you get away then, with as well. And then the second point is anyone knows who's seen the output of a Google truck doing a street right. view. There's a lot of stuff on the streets of New York. I presume that, that New York didn't sort of respectfully leave the city for you. So you'd have had <laughs> to remove a lot of stuff before you could yes. even start putting stuff back in again. Well, it, that's that's exactly it. Like um, the photography gets you a nice base, really. I mean, what it what it lend, gives you is real buildings with real light, you know, real environment. But everything's frozen, and um, and all the stuff that needs to have 
proper perspective change has to be painted out and put back in. So knowing that, like right at the beginning of the schedule, we just looked at a bunch of New York photography from our scout and started building a big library. We had about 190, you know, New York set dressing uh, pieces like taxi cabs, police cars, you know, hot dog uh, carts, you know, cones, all that stuff that we could use to repopulate the streets. Um, and, and we actually, for, for the, the story that's happening, um, we needed to actually create traffic jams within New York because everybody would be hmm. trying to escape at the same time. So, uh, we had, we had written a tool that, you know, based on the width of the road, it could, you know, populate, make sure the cars feel randomized. Some are flipped over, you know, that, that kind of thing. Um, but also, you know, putting back in trees and then every window had to, to be um, cut out and replaced with a CG window that would get proper moving reflections. And, uh, and, then, and then part of the window shader would actually put a blind in and then sl- select from – we had, you know, 20 or 30 room interiors that it would kind of randomly pick from and just do a lookup into. So it was very a cheap computation but gave us nice variety in terms of the room How interiors. far did you go in those internal rooms because the biggest problem with passing a room is you expect a perspective change inside the room. Yeah, you do. And so that's where window blinds are definitely your friend. <laughs> um, and, and the great thing about them too is that like if you set them for various heights, all of a sudden it adds a lot of randomness to what's otherwise, you know, various um, static photography. So um, th- the thing is we typically found that if it had window reflections on it and a window blind, you, you as long as you had a hint of something parallaxing inside the window um, for a room background, it, you know, you didn't necessarily feel the the fact that it was, you know, looking up into a cubic environment rather than having multiple pieces of geometry in there. So I guess this is the one place where it paid to not be doing a night shoot because, you know, you you also just by exposure don't see into rooms that much. That's true, except um, we also did the shots at the beginning of the film when the when he comes out of the water and flies up the streets um, up towards Stark Tower, and those are all uh, built from photography as well. So, oh, right, the very beginning of the film before it was yeah. destroyed, right? Yeah, yeah. So we had we had sort of the the best of both worlds, and the and the really fun thing about the nighttime uh, work is that uh, it's you know an exposure challenge as well. Let's discuss that exposure challenge because if I was shooting something in New York in the middle of the day with bright sun and stuff, especially with a bloody great sort of arc light thing going off at the corner, you'd have huge contrast ratio. And the first thing you'd want to do is, if you had people on the ground, is just put up a scrim to kind of even out and balance yeah. out. Yeah. I mean, you wanted to have completely realistic lighting, but by the same token, a realistic lighting would probably be not very aesthetically pleasing to a DOP because they Absolutely. would change it. So how did you walk that balance between realism and what is effectively sensible movie lighting? It comes down to you, you know, we, we only had the, we didn't have the budget or the crew out there at that time to be able to light New York for the photography. So we go out, we shoot New York as is, and then we're able to, because, you know, we shoot bracketed, we had enough, um, exposure range to be able to relight the buildings and not have everyone come out like a black shape against the background. Um, and the other thing that's nice about the sections of New York is there was a fair amount of, you know, neon and, and reflective windows and all that kind of stuff. So uh, between between the two of those, we were able to get enough out of the, the buildings to be able to add some creative lighting in there to, because you're right, like the photography as is, I mean, the, the interesting thing about New York is like, you'll go down some streets and they're fairly distinctive and then other streets are 
there's not much going on. Um, and so we'd end up having to add a lot back in just to kind of make them more visually interesting. But you also had to deal with this at the final shot, right? Because the final shot of you know Iron Man flying down a, or all the bad guys sort of zooming down a, had exactly the same lighting problem, which is to light them so they weren't in super high con bright sun in right. a believable way that it made it feel like it was exterior lighting. Was that just as simple as just winding up the ambient? I mean, was it you kind of uh, for for which type of shot? Well, just in any shot in New York. I'm just trying to work mm-hmm. out because it seems like ILM's been going down this very plausible lighting kind of real world situation but in the same way that a sim if you run a sim of water it can sometimes do things you don't want it to do because that's what water would do right it struck me the further you go down this path of realistic lighting the more you have to actually deal with real world lighting problems like things aren't you know lit that way in movies but in real life they would actually be high con and oh yeah hard to read Absolutely. And I think on top of that, we needed to make sure that, you know, because, um, uh, I mean, with the flying shots, we had complete control, you know, so there, like, wherever we needed to, we would um, add additional, you know, lights onto Iron Man to get him to sit in there nicely. But we also had a lot of shots of, you know, uh, Black Widow flying around or Loki flying around on a chariot. And, you know, those are all shot, um, you know, way before we know what the backgrounds are going to look like. So, Mm. You you're sort of stuck in this world where you're you're the only thing you can do is sort of light them as best you can uh, to be basically sort of we're in the the the, the shadows of the buildings um, and luckily our photography kind of supported that and then you you'd come across these alleyways uh, that had bright sun streaming down them and so we really played off of that you know tried to keep her always backlit and then uh, just built in the comp, um, just had like very quick sort of caustics, you know, just, you know, roto shapes that run light across them to get, to get that movement, to really feel like they're traveling through the environment because the plates out of the box, you know, there's no, there's no sense in change of lighting. So you kind of have to build that in, um, to match the more dynamic backgrounds that we had. Tommy, is there a sort of, uh, I mean, I'm semi-joking here, but is there a kind of a Josh Whedon lens preference? Is there like a style that you guys determined was his kind of go-to way of arranging and composing a shot in terms of long lenses, wide lenses, etc. You know, there's there's actually quite a bit of variety in the film, and um, what was what was fun about it was that you know there was there's a lot of stuff where we were working with plates and 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 continue to work with those, but there were a lot of essentially all CG shots. You know, once we're creating the city and the cars and everything, and the the you know Iron Man and foreground characters, we, you know, we started to introduce a couple snap zooms or you know different lenses, uh, you know that that kind of thing to mix it up a little bit. Um, but you know, th- there was a lot of uh, variety in terms of you know, there's there's those kind of intimate moments down there on the on the viaduct where characters are talking, and you've got um, more standard lenses, and then um, with our kind of flying around shots, we tried to introduce some more long lens type stuff. Did you sort of lighter any of that New York stuff? I mean, you yes, about, yeah. So you absolutely. So you had a huge data set, not just in terms of the what you might describe as image photography, but just in terms of like the data yeah. ranging photography. So Absolutely. So that just finishing out the New York section, that just is one heck of a data management problem. I mean, that's not a sexy thing to talk about, but it is, that can really just completely grind a production to a, to a halt, right? Because I, it's. 
Yeah, I couldn't agree more. Actually, and it was it was um, you know it was really spearheaded by David Manny, and he was uh, he, I mean the main task he had at the beginning was just figuring out how do we divide up New York uh, into manageable chunks um, because we knew you know there was a big big part of the movie that was going to play down on the on the viaduct so you know that was kind of one set of uh really high resolution data to work with then there was another chunk that we knew was going to be in the apartments and out on the balconies around the apartments so it had another set of new york for that and then one for the rooftop um and then we we built out several streets for them to fly around but even within that managing that sort of larger chunks of set there was you know the where do the roads go and where do the sidewalks go and how do those get grouped together with the buildings around them and how do they seem together with the sidewalks, you know, nearby. So, um, you're absolutely right in that it took, it took quite a while, um, to, to get the structure of it right. And managing that asset was a, was a huge part of the problem. And, and on, on top of that, as you were mentioning, you know, that just gets you, uh, some buildings and and some sidewalk and some ground and they're empty and then it's a matter you know all the cars and and street lamps and you know bollards and you know newspaper and things that had to be put back in on top of that made the the scenes quite complex but we really built off some of the sort of set dressing uh, technology that we developed for rango in order to manage all that complexity if i can just talk about integrating that live action photography before because i do want to actually sure. just touch on the heli carrier but i I think that's much yeah. more a fully digital problem. Um, yep. So principal photography was on the Alexa, and I presume you were shooting to a codex or uh, yes. getting the raw files? Yeah. So you had plates that were basically, what, 2.5K effectively, right. but with good bit depth. Yep. And then did you have any issues in terms of keying? I mean, would you go with green and blue, and, and did you raise those levels up to get it registering well or – we generally, I mean, most of the the um, area down on set, you know, was green. Um, as you know, anywhere Captain America would play, we'd obviously favor green um, uh, as the color to work with. And uh, um, it, it was it was quite a challenge at the beginning. I think one of the other. You know, as, there's also um, we, we did quite a bit of testing in the beginning with different debearing methods because you'd have um, d- different methods would would certainly introduce noise. Um, and there was a lot of hair work on the show. Like Captain America was absolutely our favorite because he's got a nice sharp edge to work with. And you, you <laughs> no get hair. into Black Widow and you get into Hawkeye and Thor, and that's not fun hair to you no. know pull off some pretty challenging uh, green screens. So. Um, I think there was quite a range there. One of the other things that we did do, though, was work uh, wide gamut um, on the on the show, and I think that helped a lot. Like I'd done previous projects, Rec Seven Hundred Nine, and um, I think it was it was a big changeover for us. But in the end, it was really worth it to. Did you go ISIS three? Uh, we did, yeah. In, like our internally, we worked wide gamut, and then we were uh, you know P three in in the end for display, right. So let's talk about that uh, heli character. Great, great piece of modeling. We haven't spoken a lot about the modeling. Sure. But, I mean, this has got to be um, an incredibly intricate model and a lot of fun because it is, you know, something that clearly is just a fun thing to kind of muck around with. Oh, um, yeah. Did it? Did its design, because it's quite complicated how it sort of, and sort of, even a plot point, how it kind of first takes off. Did that yeah. come about easily in terms of design and modeling? 
Well, you know, we had great designs to start with as far as the overall sort of form and function of the helicarrier, and we always knew the the wings were going to be there. But, um, you know, as, as you say, like the devil is really in the details, um, and uh, the this the scene where it takes off, um, uh, we had um, we had. Uh, spent quite a bit of time um the the work was done by um scanline you know through us and um they, they we had to you know work back and forth in terms of how much uh how much of the um carriers revealed in each of the shots so that it feels like there's kind of a build up and uh, and I think it ended up working out really well where it starts off and there's there's this kind of mystery and they sort of set it you know Joss sets it up with uh um oh this could be a submarine you know, and you start to see the water bubble, and then all of a sudden, no, this is something entirely different. And uh, and just figuring out how much of the blades to reveal in each of the shots was uh, quite a challenge. Because both in that sequence where it takes off, and then of course during the damaged uh, attack sequence, yep. there's a lot of fine detail on that, especially around those uh, destructed areas where Captain America and uh, Iron Man are kind of working. It is, and that was one of the I think you touched on one of the really challenging parts of the helicarrier in that you know Scanline was doing a lot of the shots where it was taking off from the water. Uh, we were doing a lot of the ones where it's kind of flying around um in the air and also where the uh plane flies into the underbelly so we had to to really detail out that whole uh atrium in the in the underbelly um and then and then also uh Weta was doing a lot of the shots where uh it's damaged and iron man's kind of fixing the engine um so you know that asset had to move around between different facilities and what was nice about that is we kind of built the the whole of the uh, helicarrier structure, and then you know where we have a close-up shot on an engine. Uh, Scanline adds some additional detail. They pass that back to us. We fold it in. Then Weta added the damage to the engine after it blows up, and the, you know that that came back in and folded in for our shots later in the film. So it was um, it was a heavily passed around asset, but uh, in the end, I feel pretty successful because of that. Oh, that's interesting because I assumed that uh, conceptually it was the same thing, but that maybe there were completely different models for the different parts that were completely just in isolation to the primary model simply because, like any movie set, right, you don't need every room right. to be inside the master wide. You, it is, it is definitely broken up. Um, and uh, But the thing is all of us had so many different close-ups of the helicarrier that we ended up needing those different pieces uh, from each other. You know, So Weta probably worked with a lot more detail in their damaged area than we needed for our wides. And we never you – know, we, we really tricked out the underbelly atrium but mm-hmm. then built a very uh, simplified version that could be used for, for wide shots of, of the other vendors seeing the underbelly. And you would have built the jets or the bladed – turbine things on the side presumably and got that sorted yeah yeah because we had already started the shots where it's kind of flying through the air and the the jet is pulling up to it just you know during the hulk sequence because it struck me that it would be you know interesting i mean i'm sure somebody reverse engineered how the hell that thing worked but it did seem like Mm -hmm. a kind of an interesting big mechanical problem because you have to believe that it was possible for it to do it albeit obviously sort of pretty out there but you know had to make sort of some sense well, we had some interesting discussions in the beginning where, you know, we, we added things like pulled from real hel- uh, aircraft carriers like the um, the tow cables, you know, that are the under deck and there's a metal strips around there and kind of had a good laugh about the fact that, well, if this thing's already 30,000 feet in the air, do you really need a launch uh, 
cable. <laughs> Probably not, but you know, it, it looks cool. So we'll put it in there. But there was a lot of thought put into, you know, making sure that, uh, this thing would be believable uh, flying through the air and then and then also the the kind of hologram effect so that you can't see it from down below so what cell scale is obviously that fine detail and what really helps it a lot is having little people run around because then you can sort yep. of know how big a person is uh were any of those uh, green screen were they all digital doubles i mean how did you populate the flight deck and the areas where it there was- were people it was a combination of both, I think. Um, so there's, there were several different – the sort of big wide shots, they were uh, all digital doubles. Um, as we got down on the deck and, you know, um, Black Widow and Captain America and, and um, uh, uh, Banner are talking, we shot those uh, at an airport um, in New Mexico. And uh, they had, you know, some guys dressed up in flight suits close up and then we added uh digital doubles uh in the background to to kind of finish out because you know you want to you want to sense that there's several you know quite a few guys on the deck in order to make this whole thing work can you talk to me about the rendering process to get the level of realism was it uh sure. render man and were you it, yeah we used um i'm not sure exactly what uh scanline used but for for our shots we used render man and uh um, one of the things that we spent a lot of time on was the spec maps, um, and you know something we saw uh, from all our aircraft carrier um, reference is that that real we call them Wonder Bread maps, but you get these like really complex, uh, beautiful sheens down the sides. Um, and since we knew it was going to be in the air, we really want to play off that in terms of breaking up those big gray forms, so they actually um, have quite a bit of detail in there. And, and for New York, was that the same thing? Were you uh I imagine there'd be a real valid case for a reasonable amount of ray tracing in those uh, reflective cities. Yeah, uh, it was a combination there. Um, we, we certainly render stuff through Max and V-Ray um, and then the the rest through uh, RenderMan. Well, look, it's a phenomenally successful film, but also just a heck of a, a job to uh, pull it all together. It's great that it's finding an audience and uh, looks like it's set to break every record. So congratulations. Thank you. Yeah, we're uh, it's uh, it, n- nothing uh, more gratifying than um, you know putting a lot of hard work into it, but having it be so well received, and I think um, you know also have people really enjoy the film so much. I think is uh, is fantastic. Thanks to Jeff and Mike for that. Next week on the FX podcast, we have an interview. I think you're going to want to hear. It's an interview I did recently with Peter Marley from IATSE, the International Alliance of Theatrical Stage Employees, to discuss the formation of a visual effects guild. IATSE represents over 110,000 members in the entertainment and related industries, but not many workers in the area of visual effects. I really hope you'll take the time to listen to this interview as I've worked for a long time to bring you this one. Almost two years to get them to sit down with us and present their case directly to you, the artists. Are you an FX Insider? FX Insider is our special membership program that gives members access to special, more in-depth, and members-only content. Details can be found at fxguide.com. Click the FX Insider tab. You've been listening to the FX Podcast. In addition to this podcast, we do two other regularly scheduled audio podcasts. The VFX Show reviews visual effects and current releases, as well as classic films. The RC Podcast covers the ever-changing landscape of digital cinematography. And if you've enjoyed this podcast, we'd also recommend our weekly high-definition video podcast, FX Guide TV. You can find all of these, along with in-depth articles, news, and more, at fxguide.com. This is Jeff Huser from my partners John Montgomery and Mike Seymour. We'll see you on the next FX Podcast. Please let us know if you have any suggestions for stories or future podcasts. 
You can reach us by clicking the Contact Us link at the top of the homepage. This podcast is copyright FX Guide LLC. Broadcast or redistribution is prohibited without the expressed written consent of FX Guide.